Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glories of Christ. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to once again be reminded of the greatness of the power of Christ and to recognize also the desires of Christ, that we would be a people who have his heart of compassion for those around us. So Lord, teach us, we pray. Make us your students who are sitting at your feet today as we look into your portion, this portion of your word. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to begin by just saying I need your prayers as I try to preach uh, for the first time, having had, uh, I guess you'd say, half of what the, con- the cataract surgery I need to have. I've had this eye done, but not this eye. And my vision just changes every day, and so I have a contact lens in this eye, and, and that's one of the things that's been the biggest challenge. Can you believe that? Um, it's one thing to have your eye operate on, but the other eye, I did wear contacts years ago, and he gives me contacts. I said, you've had these before? I said, yes. So he said, okay, here you go. You know how to do that. So he hands me this contact lens, and this thing is so thin. They've changed them a lot since I used to wear them. And I can't seem to find that, get this thing to situate right. It took me the longest time to get it out of my eye. And I was getting so frustrated, my eye was killing me because I'm putting my fingers in my eye, trying to get this thing out of my eye. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to have worse problem with this eye than I have this eye. Anyway, one day I took a walk and I had my contact lens inside out. It's like irritating me the whole time I'm walking. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get this thing out of my eye. Anyway, so I need your prayer. I was thinking about the fact that he didn't even give me any kind of instructional manual. probably couldn't read it anyway if he'd given me one on how to handle contact lenses. But you know, we all need help and training to do something that we've never been equipped or fully trained to do before. And the more I've read through the Gospels over the years, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm convinced they serve several functions, but at least one of those functions, I think, is that they are excellent manuals for discipleship. Because they are teaching us what it means to be a disciple by listening to Jesus interact with his disciples as he seeks to build in them qualities of true discipleship. And in here in the Matthew, it's interesting to look at how he structured his book together. Matthew takes and lumps together large segments of teaching in Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there's five of them. And some have said it's like the five books of the Torah. You know, this is like uh, Matthew has a very strong Jewish Uh, emphasis in this book. And so you find portions of instruction uh, in the book of Matthew, and then you'll find portions of involvement. Here's a time to get his people, his disciples involved in things. There's time for hearing and learning, and then there's time for hands-on training. And we see that here in the book of Matthew. So I hope you have your Bible open or you have your tablet there on, and you've got yourself, you're looking now at Matthew chapter 14, but if you notice the context of this particular passage is following chapter 13 in which we find lumped together a long explanation of Jesus' teaching about the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, there are seven parables, count them, seven parables Obviously, Jesus didn't teach them all at the same time, I don't think. I think Matthew has deliberately put them together here 
And these parables are designed to impress upon Jesus' followers that when we live under Jesus' reign, when we live under Jesus' rule in the kingdom, it's going to be much different than what you would expect it to be as one of his followers. In the kingdom parables, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of heaven is going to face ongoing opposition. It's not going to be an easy road to hoe. You're going to face a time in which there's all sorts of responses to the message of the gospel in the kingdom. Some people are going to walk away, no, it's a big deal. Other people are very excited about it, and then they begin to walk away. And Other people are going to have other things just squeeze out the message of the gospel because of uh, the things of this world and the ang- anxiousness of the wor- of over this world and whatever. You're going to find that the, the gospel message is so valuable to those who really understand it and embrace it that even when we suffer loss of property, we suffer loss of privileges, even that will still be greeted somehow by the grace of God with joy. Because the treasure of the gospel, how can it be that people would re- respond with joy when they're called upon to give up so much? And the answer is because the gift of forgiveness of sin, the gift of, a, of inward transformation, the gift of, of new status, a new identity, a new relationship with God as our Father, this is a greater treasure than all the gold of Fort Knox. Jesus impresses upon his, his followers these radically different ways of thinking and understanding about the kingdom. And it seems to me he lays a foundation in chapter 13 that the, essentially the kingdom of heaven is driven by delight, not by duty, and not by drudgery. But it's love for Jesus that is at the core of kingdom living. That's very important to understand because, again, against the backdrop of what Jesus is saying, many of the people of that day, they're just following the drudgery of rules, rules, rules. And Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not it at all. Jesus is such a treasure in the gospel that his disciples are willing to give up mother and father and brother and sister, even their own life. And sure enough, that's what we read in Matthew 14. It leads us right into that understanding that it is a very costly commitment in being in the kingdom. Chapter 13 is like a sketchboard or like one of those, you ever see those adult coloring books they got going around now where they have all these black lines all over the place and then it's up to you to fill in all the color, right? Well, chapter 13 is like the black and white drawings of the kingdom dynamics. It's chapter 14 where we begin to see the coloring in of those sketches where Jesus takes the teaching about the kingdom and he begins to help them see in the realities of discipleship what it means to seek the kingdom of heaven. And the darkest shades are the first ones to fill in those lines in chapter 14 as we read about John the Baptist who is brutally, brutally executed by Herod Antipas. Horrific incident in which he's beheaded And the disciples learn about that, and obviously you can just imagine what kind of alarm, what kind of concern. Jesus said there's none greater than John the Baptist in terms of prophets in the Old Covenant, but now he's dead. So what happens when you go against this awful opposition that comes against the kingdom of heaven? Are we to throw our hands up and give up? Do we pull back? Do we limit our exposure to people who are not in the kingdom and we become more concerned about taking less risks and just sort of being among ourselves and 
avoiding speaking out against the things that are offensive to God, which is what John the Baptist did, got his head cut off. Here at this moment, Jesus leads his disciples into a training session. And he is determined to impress upon his disciples, I want you to think now with a kingdom mindset. And so when we read Matthew chapter 14, 13 to 21, I believe Jesus is intentionally instructing his disciples and leading them into this practical ministry training exercise about gaining three elements of a kingdom mindset. Three elements. And the first is this. A kingdom mindset includes a compassionate heart for lost people. A compassionate heart for lost people. After Jesus learned about John the Baptist's execution, isn't it interesting to read there in verse 13 that Jesus withdrew sort of pulled away from the crowds he, he he wanted time alone and just sort of to think through and respond and react to that kind of a terrible news it might have been a time of brief mourning because i'm sure there's a sense in which jesus appreciated so much john the baptist in his ministry perhaps jesus was once again contemplating the level and the degree of satan's opposition that is is wielded against the kingdom of heaven. But whatever the reason was, it doesn't really tell us there. It didn't take long till the multitudes, till all these people who had been hearing about Jesus and who had been amazed at who he was and what he was saying, what he was doing, they found out where he was. They walked to that location to be with him. And look what his response in verse 14. Having gone through, again, a very difficult Loss. He suffered a, a, a terrible loss in the kingdom, in a sense. Jesus saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed the sick. He saw the multitude. He felt compassion for them. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that this account of Jesus seeing a large number of people like this following him and in need of him, he says he looked at them as if they were like a sheep with no shepherd. They are vulnerable sheep and they need somebody who's going to care for them, somebody who's going to lead them where they need to go, someone who's going to provide for them what they really, really need. What a contrast. What a vivid contrast between Jesus' reaction and the reaction of the disciples as the text unfolds. We get to... The opportunity for the disciples to think about here's opportunities for expanding kingdom ministry, all these lost people around them. And look at verse 15. Their response, essentially what many of us would probably say at the same time, it was logical human reasoning. They were just sizing up the situation. They were looking at what's going on there, looking at their clocks, looking at their, you know, where the sun is, how far it is in the sky, realizing, oh boy, it's getting to the end of the day here. And the approach they made was to say, listen, it makes the most sense for us to just say, hey, listen, we got to cut this off. we got to stop this ministry opportunity. we got to move on. And so they're begging Jesus. They're urging him, Jesus, send these folks away. Tell all this multitude to move on. It's over. Things are not going to work out because we're running out of time, running out of food. 
And I've been meditating on that as the week went along, thinking about how many times did Jesus' disciples use their human reasoning and say, you know, this is not working out. You people need to move along. It's amazing how many times it happens. I thought about the time in Matthew chapter chapter 15 in which uh, Jesus' disciples kept asking him again and again, would you please send this Canaanite woman away? Just get her to leave. She doesn't belong here. There's also a time in which Jesus' disciples rebuked and corrected and chastised all these people who at one another time were bringing little children to Jesus and wanting him to bless them and pray over them, put his hands on them. And what did Jesus say to them? Jesus said, let these little ones come to me. Don't hinder them. Don't send them away. It's okay. That's Matthew 19. And then you'll recall in Matthew 16, again, Jesus mentions that he's going to die. He's going to uh, be uh, put to death. He's going to be raised again from the dead third day. And Peter just pulls him aside and says, listen, Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, "Uh uh-uh. You're not going to suffer all these things. You're not going to be put to death. You're not going to be raised from the dead. That's not part of the plan. It's interesting how human reasoning contradicts kingdom mindset oftentimes. And this is what's happening in this text. Jesus is committed to training his disciples to let go of their traditional ways of thinking. To let go of their personal preferences. And he's trying to guide his disciples toward a greater willingness to explore unconventional responses to things that in the past they would have handled it a certain way. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he leading his disciples into this situation on purpose, and he's now beginning to use this as a situation where he's going to impress upon them this kingdom mindset? What's he, going, what's he trying to accomplish here? Is he just trying to teach them problem-solving skills? Okay, you 12 men, let's figure out how you're going to handle the situation with these huge numbers of people around here. What are you going to do? That's not it. He's also not saying, okay, I want you, the 12 men, to learn principles of catering and how to do, you know, preparation for large groups of people, food preparation for all, so learn how to handle food safely and care. That's not the point of the text. Jesus' goal, Jesus' priority, is that the Father might work through ordinary human disciples to expand the kingdom by what? Reaching the lost. Reaching the lost. And so Jesus' goal, I think, is he's nudging them. He's giving them the good old nudge to say, hey, you folks need to step out in faith here. Take some new steps of faith. To look beyond your preferences, look beyond your procedures of ministry that you think. And and instead of becoming so focused on on, uh, withdrawing into safety, and thinking about trying to do things for your own security, look at this as an opportunity to expand and move outward in your ministry focus. And clearly there's another thing that's going on in this text, and we don't want to also overlook this, and that is Jesus is also revealing himself to this vast multitude of people. And if you're here today and you've never really taken the time to carefully consider the identity of Jesus Christ, let me urge you to read this text again and again until you begin to understand that Jesus is unique. 
Jesus is the one and only one. There's none like him. That Jesus Christ has come that he might reveal himself to be one who is to be seen and understood for who he is and then to savor and be filled with a sense of wonder and awe at Jesus Christ who is the one sent from God as God and man so that he would say things that only God would ever claim or say, say and do and then he would follow up with doing things that only God could do. My friend, Jesus Christ came to reveal God to us so that we might have a relationship with God and reconcile us to a God that we have walked away from and broken His ways and laws time and time again. So Jesus has on His heart not only the crowds of the lost people, but He also has on His heart His disciples. Now as I've thought about this text, I realize that over time, our church's effectiveness in reaching lost people in our community with the gospel and with various forms of good works has decreased over time. And some of us, obviously during this particular time, over the last several who knows how many years, some of us perhaps have become more focused on doing our own thing, sort of just staying out of trouble, not taking too many risks, uh, some of us sort of are assuming that someone will take care of that role. Somebody around here is going to be involved in maybe reaching out and touching the lives and hearts of people who are lost around us. But I don't particularly feel led to do that myself, some of them some said to themselves. And maybe others have assumed that the best way to do that, and they're committed to it, is to assume that the best way to do that is to do what was done years ago. And so there's a sense in which some of us have said, well, we need to reach the lost, yes, but it's best if what worked for us years ago would be the same approach that we ought to be doing here on out. And so we get committed to certain methodologies that are perhaps our favorites or what we thought was best at the time. But it's interesting when you think about our church history, it, there have been times in our life of our church in the long 200 years of history that there have been ministry methods that have changed over time. There have been these radical shifts as things all of a sudden now they're going to move in a different direction. And we certainly know that one of those was during the late 50s and early 60s when this area was booming. They're putting up houses everywhere. And the post-World War II boom of all these children being born and families settling and looking for a place to live. And this area was just thriving. And so the members of the church attending the old historical building said, look, we've got to do something to prepare for the fact that we're going to reach more and more people in this community. We've maxed out here. And so they were willing, and this is a huge choice, to leave behind the old historic building, leave behind the land where they've laid all their family members and loved ones and fellow believers to rest in that cemetery, and they looked for somewhere else to do ministry, looking for opportunities to what? Step out in faith and keep seeking others for Christ. I was told years ago that <clears> at <throat> one time they were broadcasting on the radio, having their own broadcast, uh, playing records <laughs> for parts of it. And then someone, I think guess the pastor would speak or whatever. So they were using radio and other forms of technology that were cutting edge, I guess, at the time. And there came a time when they began to pay youth pastors and bring them on staff, which was something that was unheard of. 
years ago in the other generations. But this is something they began to do because they felt the need of making effective impact in the community. And over the years, this church has chosen to invest heavily and to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and to seek to bless those who have been called by the Spirit and send them out into ministry. It's not just about here. It's about sending off others into ministry so that Christ could be proclaimed, so that Christ could be um, changing the hearts and lives of people who don't know Him, who do not live in this area. So there's been numerous people over the years, more recently the Placinski family, uh, settling up in southern Maine to reach many of the lost people in that area. So as I've thought about all these things, I've said to myself, okay, well, the Lord is obviously, just like, just like he led those disciples into that situation with all these people around him, so the Lord has led us to the situation where we are today. For a reason. And clearly, what he wants us to gain is a re... A, 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 to make us um, aware once again in a very fresh and real and vital way of a focus that we need to have on the lost people of our community. Now, we can respond to this situation we're in by trying to say, well, we need to be comfortable here. We need to focus on staying safe in the confines of these four walls. But I don't think that's what Jesus wants us to live, right? I think Jesus is saying, we don't want you to have, I want you to have compassion for the people who are not in these four walls the people who are still lost all around us, so many mothers and fathers, so many teens, so many children, so many senior citizens, so many broken lives around us. People who are famished and need the bread of life. People who are spiritually blind and they're without hope in this world. People who are essentially perishing. Now hear me say this clearly, the gospel obviously never changes. If we change the gospel, then we have and we deserve the judgment of God and the wrath of God to come down on us, as Paul would say in Galatians 1. But the gospel never changes. But how we bring that gospel to lost people may and will change over time. More recently, I'm thankful to say that one of our brothers here, Mark Kerrigan, is taking the initiative to start thinking, brainstorming, how can we minister to people and respond to people around us who are doing not know the Lord by starting a ministry that involves giving baskets to people who are facing crises in their lives and to have in, those, in that basket are various expressions of concern and, and, and support and love and, 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 uh, and compassion. What a great idea. Open up doors of opportunity for gospel conversations with these people. And if you have a, a person you know in need of something, someone who, would, who could be benefited by, by a gift like that, be sure to contact him and others who are helping him. How are we going to reach this next generation? How do we connect with people in generations that are younger, that think differently, that have different interests, that have different ways of looking at things, have different ways of uh, seeing life? I'll tell you one thing, I never thought I would ever be open to considering, and it's only that's all we're doing now is considering, but I thought, never thought I'd be open and even involved in any kind of thought about our church merging with another church, but I've had to say I'm more open to that thought and concept only because why? Because I'm beginning to understand that the kingdom dynamics is this is bigger than just 
our history and our own identity and whatever. It's the issues of what, what are we going to do about the lost people around us? How effectively are we able to do that? Could we do that more effectively with merging and joining forces with those who are doing so and can help us become more effective? It's something we are at least looking at. We're talking about it. We're just exploring it. Nothing's been decided. But I'm convinced this is part of our faith venture where the Christ wants us to say, okay, Lord, give us a compassionate heart. And that compassionate heart may mean we go in a direction we never thought we would go in and respond in ways that I think these disciples never thought they'd be involved in something like this ever, ever, ever. So the first thing is a compassionate heart for the lost. We, don't, we certainly don't want to miss that is what this text is impressing upon us about a kingdom mindset. But notice secondly here that in the kingdom mindset, it also involves making sacrifices for lost people. If we really have a kingdom mindset, we're going to have to be willing to make sacrifices for other people. Jesus says in verse 16, did you see this? Jesus tells his disciples, you, speaking to the 12 disciples, you disciples, you yourselves, give them something to eat. I love that. You 12, give them something to eat. Look at this vast, huge number of people. It's laughable at times, you think about it. Their response, verse 17. <laughs> we, we have here only five loaves and two fish. We only have enough for what? A dozen of us to share. We only have a supply that's quite limited. It's insufficient when you look at this amount of food that would be required to feed a crowd this size. Come on, all we've got is just this. And look at what Jesus says. Bring what you have here to me. Bring it to me. Bring what you have. I know it's not a lot. Bring it here to me. Give me what you have, he says. I want to use what little you have to enable you to minister to the greater number of people than you ever thought possible. He says, now listen, don't squirrel it away. You know, don't take some of those loaves and say, oh, uh, uh, you and we're going to have this among ourselves. We're just going to keep it. Stored. Here, there's four loaves and two fish. He says, no, give me everything you got. Surrender it to me. Now, why is Jesus saying this? Why is he asking them to respond in this way? Again, I am going to suggest to you that the reason is that Jesus desired to reveal his glory, to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his supremacy to his disciples. He wanted them to see that he is one who has great power and compassion for the lost people around him. And he wanted to what? Have the crowd see that too. Jesus' focus is on kingdom building. Kingdom building. Now, if I had been there, I've been putting myself into this story, saying, okay, now suppose I was one of the 12 and I'm in this situation, what would have been my response? Well, I had to be honest and I've had to say, well... <laughs> If I had been there, I would not have been thinking about building the kingdom. I'm sorry. My response would have been something like this. Uh, I'm getting hungry myself. My stomach's growling. And I don't think we have 
a whole lot of food here, and so if we're asked to give this up, then that means I'm not going to have anything to eat today, and I'm not going to be able to sleep very well tonight, and I don't, I don't get along with people very well when I don't eat. I probably also would have been calculating in my mind, just like some of the disciples did, they began to total up in their heads and do some, some computation, and they began to say, well, you're looking at this number of people? Do you realize that's going to take 200 days of wages? You're looking at thousands and thousands of dollars, Jesus, to go off and buy some food for these people. So what do you do? You think about money, right? That's, I'm a cheap guy. I would think, are you kidding me? You realize how much this is going to cost? So I think about myself first, my own hunger. I think about money is the second thing I think about. And the third thing I probably would think about is what? I would probably start grumbling inside. Have you ever had a little conversation with yourself? You're saying, this is not going to go well. And you know what this is going to mean? We're going to have to tromps off and go find other food. We've had nothing to eat ourselves, and this is not going to end well. And you just sort of imagine how bad, and start grumbling in your spirit. That's probably how I would have responded. Look what Jesus says. You yourselves give them something to eat. What a lesson Jesus is impressing on his disciples here. Because it's so tempting, isn't it, naturally to focus on our own needs, our own wants, and to overlook the the, the real priority of gospel ministry to the lost multitudes all around us. Jesus' disciples are challenged to yield not to, not only their food resources, he's saying, okay, give me your food, but I think he's also challenging them to what? Surrender their concerns about hunger, surrender to them their concerns about their fears, about what's going to happen if we do all this and do exactly what you say, and to surrender their ideas to this master who is leading them through this training exercise i think there's some real difficulty in saying i got to surrender this this sense of trust and the one that's calling me to do these things where is jesus leading them well i think it's a very practical principle here in your notes i think it's it's a practical principle of discipleship and that is i think he's trying to help them realize the principle of stewardship stewardship what we have is not really our own if you're a true disciple of jesus because what the earth is the lord's and everything in it now let's see does that include the things that are under the roof of the place where i live uh yeah i guess so and so one of the things that you learn as you get a kingdom mindset is to become more aware of the fact that we begin to now have a a point of view, a a perspective that sort of holds before us the fact that I'm a steward, not an owner of anything. When we were in seminary, uh, when I was in seminary, my wife was working hard to support us through that time. We would look for ways to make additional money, and one of the great ways to make money in this particular part of North Chicago area, uh, where there are many, many well-to-do homes like this area here, um, and so here we are living in a mobile home, 12 feet by 60. That is our little abode. And so we are making do as best we can. And they offered through the seminary, they, people would call and say, I need a couple to come and watch our house for a week. It's called house sitting. 
It was simple, easy money. It was a great job. And so we would sign up and we would go meet this couple. They don't know us from Adam, but we are seminarians, so that must say something to them, I guess. And so they trusted us. They gave us the keys. <clears throat> They'd show us a tour of their freezer and refrigerator. You can have anything you want. We're not going to be here for a week, so help yourself. And uh, here's how the TV works, and we'll be back in a week. I mean, we're left in these mansions, these very, really big houses, and we're just like little kids in there going like, wow, this is really nice. Now, did we ever think that it was ours? No way. We were walking around like, don't break that. Oh, got to put that back where I found it. You know, it's like we're very careful about how we handle ourselves because it's not ours. We're just there for a short time watching it for somebody else. Here's the principle. Everything we have is entrusted to us by God. We are not owners. We are stewards. So that means our houses, our time, our money, our cars, our tools of technology, our clothes, even our church facilities aren't really ours, are they? It's God's. Everything belongs to God. So it makes no difference if you have only a little bit of this world's goods or if you have a lot of this world's goods. It doesn't make any difference. Jesus owns it all. So the question that these disciples face, the question that you and I are facing is, am I and are you willing to surrender everything to Christ? Are your hands gripping tightly certain things in your life that say, I am not about to let go of whatever it is. This is mine. And I, I, I don't know how I could survive without this. I got to have it. Or have you, are you reached the point where you say, okay, Lord, everything I have, I've got with an open hand. At any moment, you can take it out of my hand, and that's your right and your prerogative. That's what I think gospel ministry involves, dealing with God and with other people with open hands. And so that's why he says in verse 18, bring them here to me. Whatever you have, it's something I've given you already. It belongs to me. Give it to me. Now, we as a church obviously have been blessed with many resources. Right now, we're sort of running less with the resources of people and people who can serve, people who can do things. And so the less lurkers mean that there's less ministry efforts we can actually be involved in, that the older people cannot do what they once did, and on and on we go. But the fact is, Jesus delights to put his power on display when we are weak. When we feel like we are low in resources or whatever, it's an opportunity for him to show the greatness of his resources and to realize that everything belongs to him anyway. And so some of our resources obviously are not being fully utilized right now. We have a parking lot that doesn't ever get filled up. We have a building that's parts of it are hardly ever used anymore. We have a piece of property here that's worth millions that other churches can't even think about getting close to because of the cost. And so I'm just saying, one of the things I've been asking myself, one of the things I feel like uh, the Lord is asking us to consider is, would you ever, I'm not saying it's going to happen, this is not a done deal, 
But I'm just saying, would you ever be willing to say, Lord, if we as a church can help the kingdom by offering you what we have and help some other form of the kingdom, would that be something that we would ever be willing to do personally and as a church? At some point, we'll have to answer that question. I wouldn't be surprised. If we continue on as we are, it's probably a logical thing we'll have to look at and consider formally. Well, for these disciples, all it meant was two fish and five loaves. It's a little bit different, I realize. But I think it was difficult for them to finally say, here you go, you can have it. But kingdom mindset has a compassion for people around us who are lost. It also is a, a willingness to surrender. And real quickly here, third point, I'm just going to rattle these off rather quickly to you. You can meditate on them more as, as time would allow. But a kingdom mindset includes faithful, persevering service in order to minister to unbelievers and lost people around us. We read in the text here that Jesus performed an amazing miracle, verse 19 and 20. He takes this little small snack lunch, <laughs> and he keeps multiplying it and multiplying it and multiplying and multiplying it, and he transforms what is this small amount of food into enough food to feed a crowd estimated to be approximately 20,000 people, as some scholars have added all the numbers up. Now, this meal was not a Costco meal. You know, some people go in and have their lunch at Costco, right? They go in. I don't know if you ever shopped there, but uh, thankfully the church gives us a membership as you go in there, and they have all the samples throughout the, throughout the particular warehouse. And so you sample that and sample that. Oh, I like that. I'll sample that one. Oh, yeah, I'll stand in line and get one of those. And so they eat their lunch just by sampling all the samples. I've never found my appetite to be satisfied fully with samples. But anyway, the point is, he did more than just give out samples. That's my point. Look at verse 20. They ate. Now, they ate. The they there is, what, 20,000 people. They ate and were satisfied. I'm sorry, but samples don't satisfy me. Eating a full meal satisfies. So Jesus' provision brought about true satisfaction. And I would say this, the tons of food that Jesus miraculously supplied did not fall from the sky upon the laps of these people who were seated in the field. But notice that Jesus, in his power and his ability to make all this food and multiply it, he gave to his disciples the task, the responsibility, the involvement of distributing this life-sustaining meal to all these people. So God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And that means you and me. So let's think about this. Notice that these disciples worked and served tirelessly, tirelessly. You got 20,000 people, sorry, yeah, if you have 20,000 people and you divide it by 12 people carrying the baskets of food, what do you get? You get lots of trips delivering the food, right? You get lots of, I got to carry this over here, carry this over here, carry this over here, carry this over this group. There's a lots of carrying going on and it's done again and again and again. Now, I read somewhere that waiters and waitresses, they walk a lot. 
on my phone, I keep track of how many steps I take in a day, where I'm going. I always, I always check, keep my phone with me so that those, those steps add up. And so if I get 10,000 steps, I'm doing well. Well, look at this. I read somewhere that the average waiter and waitress walks 23,000 steps per day on the job. 10,000 is like four miles. Imagine that. They're walking miles and miles and miles. Imagine a crowd this size, how many steps those disciples walked that day. I wonder if arranging the people into these groups of 50 and groups of 100 was Jesus' way of saying, let's make paths for these deliveries of the food. I'm just wondering. Makes sense to me. But the point is, there was so much work to be done. And that is what's true in our church. There's a lot of work to be done. Whether we have a merger or no merger, there's work to be done. And discipleship, if you have a kingdom mentality, says, here, I'm willing to jump in. It might be something I have to do. Keep doing. i got to keep doing. Why? Because the Lord is using me, and He's relying on people like you and me to do what we can. And I think it begins with prayer, by the way. Are we laboring in prayer as a church? I would urge you, I'm going to call and, again, solicit and urge and invite as many of you to come and join us 9.30 on Sunday mornings to pray. Pray for our church. Pray for the ministries of opportunity that we're looking for and for wisdom and for guidance and whatever. I mean, join us and pray. What are you doing on Sunday morning before you come here? I mean, I don't know if it's too important. I don't know if you're unable and hindered, but... We're here to pray. I hope you'll join us. There's lots of work to be done. Secondly, and by the way, unless we pray, we are going to be tired. We're going to give up because we have to keep our focus on God. God's working among us. Secondly, as you notice in this text, that all this ministering to the crowd, it was worth it. It was worth it. And therefore, I came up with the word lovingly. They served lovingly. These disciples were meeting real needs. I think they began to become aware of what a, what a what a joy it must have been to say, you hungry? Here's some food. You don't owe me anything. Jesus is the one providing it. I mean, what a great delight it must have been to be the one delivering the food, a tangible proof of Jesus' greatness, Jesus' glory, Jesus' grace being shown to them. Here they were, blessed to be the agents of grace, taking to all these multitudes the food of life. They're involved here in a much bigger ministry than just food. Their service of love and delivering this food that Jesus multiplied was giving them a tangible evidence of Jesus' power. So that these people could taste and see that the Lord is good, the Lord is powerful, and the Lord is gracious and full of mercy. Maybe through them and through the giving of this food, they began to understand that maybe God really does love me. There's a God who really loves me. You know, you could be involved in doing something like that to touch somebody's life, something thoughtful, some gesture, some involvement in their life to say, this person really does love me. And they might see again, as Matthew says, chapter 5, they might see through our good works and understand and glorify our Father in heaven. Lastly, I would just mention that um, I find it fascinating in verse 20 of chapter 14, that there's leftovers. By the way, my wife and I, we don't throw away leftovers. I don't, I don't, I don't understand people that do. But anyway, uh, it's significant that there was leftovers. What does the leftovers signify? Why do they put these details into the text? By the way, it would also indicate this is not being a made-up story. 
This is something that really happened. There's, there's eyewitnesses in there talking about the details like this. There's 12 baskets left over, and the baskets were not just a little bit here, a little bit there. They're full, indicating what? Everybody's satisfied. Nobody wants all this food. There's more than enough here. But what's the significance of the 12 baskets? Hmm, where have we heard 12? Why do we think about 12 in this text? Hmm, there's 12 disciples. Hmm, wonder why there would be 12 baskets left. Maybe there's what? It's memorable because Jesus' concern for his disciples is to show them and leave impressed upon their heart the wonders of Jesus' generous heart to those who serve him. There's calls of sacrifice. Yes, there's calls in which we're told to, to, to lay down some things and you have to make up, give up certain things. But boy, look at the blessings that come back to us in ways you don't expect. What we have, we offer to Christ in our daily acts of service. And although there's a cost to pay, one day Christ is going to bless us as a whole. He'll bless His church. He'll say, thank you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. And Jesus' disciples here, they work together. And they share the Lord's provisions to the crowd as a team effort. And believe me, there is no greater joy, my friend, no greater joy than to see lost people coming to faith in Christ. To see people who come to Christ and be discipled become lovers of Christ, servants of Christ, people who are also now joining you in serving Christ. There's no greater joy in seeing that process happen. Let's pray that we'll see it happen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I bow before you, I pray that you would help all of us who are here today to be humble, to be teachable, to listen to the things that your Spirit wants to instruct on our hearts. But for some of us, Lord, we have to begin by saying we need to have our hearts that are more burdened for people around us who are lost. And for some of us, Lord, that means realizing that we're not the center of the world, that your heart is burdened for those who are lost. I pray that you give us that burden. Help us, Lord, to become passionately concerned about involving ourselves in being used by you to touch and impact the lives of people around us who are lost and do not know Christ, who are facing spiritual starvation. And so we pray that you would, Lord, soften our hearts. Some of us need you to really Open our eyes to see with compassion the way you see lost people around us. The people that we run into in our stores and exchanging of goods and purchases, or whether it's our neighbors, whether it's our co-workers, our schoolmates, whoever it is, Lord, help us to have a compassionate heart like you. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to surrender whatever it is you're asking us to be willing to surrender and let go of. Help us, Father, to not do so begrudgingly, but help us to do so joyously, willingly, thankfully, remembering that everything we have is only on loan to us from you. Help us, Lord, to have that kind of kingdom mindset. And for those of us who still struggle, for some of us who are still holding on tightly things in our hands, I pray, Lord, that you would learn 
Help us to learn over time to, to open the hands of our hearts so that we might be willing to share anything and everything. Whatever you ask us to give up, we would do it for the sake of your kingdom. And Father, I pray also that you would empower us to serve with great perseverance and to not give up in this great task of being involved in gospel ministry here at this church. Give us, we pray, a sign of things that you will show us. There is great blessing in being involved in being your ambassadors, your servants, and touching other lives. And Lord, do a mighty work through us, we pray. For the glory of your great name, for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.